PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Really the key is to identify those who would benefit the most so that we can spend our resources appropriately. Nowadays, people have to pay physical therapy by themselves after uh, eight treatments. And you see now that some patients stop after eight treatments because they can't afford it anymore. That's the thing that makes it so interesting. There are so many elements that can factor into how they recover. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Predicting Recovery After Total Hip Arthroplasty. Evidence is emerging to help clinicians identify patients at risk for unsuccessful outcome after total hip arthroplasty. In this discussion, Dr. Emily Slavin, a physical therapist from the United States, and Dr. Robert Wagenmakers, an orthopedic surgeon from the Netherlands, discuss their interpretation of the most current research on this topic. And now, our moderator, PTJ Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Rebecca Crake. Hello, my name is Becky Craig. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I'm delighted to serve as a moderator on today's discussion about total hip arthroplasty. I'm joined today by two experts. First is the author of the paper that we're going to discuss today, Dr. Emily Slavin. She is an assistant professor at the Cranert School of Physical Therapy at the University of Indianapolis in Indiana. Emily just completed her PhD, and the work that we will be discussing today was part of the work completed for her dissertation. Emily is also an expert in the musculoskeletal system with an orthopedic clinical specialization. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. And the other person who's participating is Dr. Robert Wagamakers, who is an orthopedic surgeon with a PhD. Robert practices and conducts research in the Netherlands. He does his surgery at the Umfia Hospital in Breda, and he conducts his research with colleagues at the University Medical Center at Groningen in the Netherlands. I'm going to ask him to pronounce both his name and the places where he works so you can hear the real pronunciation of these terms. Welcome, Robert. Thank you for inviting me for this podcast. Robert Wagenmakers, but you can pronounce as Robert Wagenmakers, and my working place is Breda, and research is performed at Groningen. Thank you very much for doing that. Robert has published extensively about outcomes related to both hip and knee arthroplasty, so I'm delighted to have him with us today to discuss the paper. Published in the November 2012 issue of Physical Therapy, entitled Prediction of Functional Outcomes at Six Months Following Total Hip Arthroplasty. Emily, let's begin by having you summarize your paper for the listeners. Certainly. As we're all aware, the incidence of total hip arthroplasty surgery has really been on the rise, and the purpose of the paper then was to look from a physical therapist's point of view to really understand which of our patients may not have an optimal outcome after this surgery and what ways can we identify those patients a little earlier in the process so that they can get in and get appropriate physical therapy if that's deemed necessary. So the study was a prospective observational cohort study where I tracked 40 patients and pre-surgery, one to three weeks before surgery, again at six weeks and then at six months, 
And during this time, looked at a variety of demographic variables, sex, age, their body mass index, and the surgical approach used. I also looked at some physical performance measures, such as the timed up and go, the 10-meter walk, and the functional reach. The goal was to establish what combination of these variables would help us understand which of these patients would be successful or not at that six-month time period. Um, the decision at that six-month time period while data was being collected as to whether that patient was successful or not depended on two criteria, those being a nine-point change in the lower extremity functional scale and also the fact that the patient was now able to ambulate without an assistive device. Looking at the results of the CART analysis, we were able to find several different variables at the higher levels of the division of the CART analysis. One of them was a body mass index over 34, and another with the participant's ability to walk at a normative speed for their sex and their age. And the goal of this then was to be able to use this information and say, if we have these pieces of information, how can that help us at that six-week time period identify which patients at the six-month time period may be struggling? And the key really is earlier intervention. As a therapist, we often see these patients a period of time down the road, and we're just wondering what can we do a little sooner to help those who might be more at risk. Thank you so very much. Robert, is there anything that you would like to provide in terms of a general comment about the paper? Well, first of all, I would like to compliment Emily with this well-performed study and well-written paper. I think it discusses an important item, namely the recovery of function after total hip arthroplasty and possibility to identify patients with less favorable outcome. I have some questions concerning the paper. First of all, in order to identify predictors for less favorable outcome, you choose a set of demographic variables. Why did you choose these specific variables? And did you consider other predictors? Or would you choose other predictors for future research? Excellent questions. Yes, the reason I chose the demographic variables were I was looking for something that was fairly easy to get access to. The demographic variables... I want it to be something that a surgeon's office would have easy access to. So that was the choice for the simple things that are part of a patient's medical record. And if I can clarify, the demographic variables that we're discussing are age, sex, and body mass index. Is that correct? That was correct for the demographics and then surgical approach and the pre-surgery lower extremity functional scale is part of that whole cohort of variables. That first part of what we call the figure two where we looked at that. And that's the thing that makes it so interesting. There are so many elements that can factor into how they recover at that six-month or 12-month time period. You also mentioned that you used the LEFS as uh, outcome measure. Mm -hmm. Why did you use this measure instead of using a commonly used outcome measure such as the physical functioning score of the WOMAC? I know many practices and research will use the WOMAC. The LAFS, from a physical therapist's point of view, provides us with more function-related activities, and it's gaining some renown in the research world to be used with patients following total joint arthroplasty. But the challenge with the WOMAC, from a physical therapy point of view, is a cost factor. And then also we were looking at the ease for the patient and some of the work that Paul Stratford and his colleagues have done that have looked at the correlation of the LAFS and the WOMAC have actually been shown to be very favorable towards it. 
So that was my ultimate decision to use the LEFS versus the Womack, but that's an excellent question. Okay. Can one of you explain the Womack for the listening audience and the LEFS, whether they're physical performance measures, self-report, you know, introduce them to the audience? Sure. I've actually got Stratford's paper here that he looks at the correlation, so I can certainly talk a little bit about the Womack. The WOMAC actually is a 24-item condition-specific self-reported measure, and it has three subscales, those for pain, stiffness, and physical function. And some of the research that's been done recently by Paul Stratford and colleagues has looked at how well the WOMAC will detect change versus the LEFS, the lower extremity functional scale. And it actually demonstrated that there's really no superiority for the WOMAC physical performance subscale to the LEFS in detecting change after total joint arthroplasty. And then the LEFS is a self-reported outcomes measure that's completed by the patient. The patient will self-report on activities such as usual work, housework, squatting or walking between the rooms as examples of some of the items that are on the 20-line LEFS. Thank you. That was helpful. Yeah. Robert, is there anything you want to add? I think that's a good explanation of the WOMIC. What is also one of the critics of the WOMIC is that the physical functioning score is also very much influenced by the pain score. And Robert, your studies have looked at physical outcome measures, and so I would ask you to comment on what you perceive as the relationship between BMI and successful outcomes post-total joint arthroplasty. Well, another study which was recently published in Obesity Surgery, it's called The Influence of Overweight Obesity on Patient Perceived Physical Functioning and Health-Related Quality of Life After Primary Total Hip Arthroplasty. It's published in 2012, and in this study, we only found a low influence of overweight obesity on physical functioning one year after primary total hip arthroplasty as determined by the physical functioning score as measured by the WOMIC. However, we found a much greater impact of complications and comorbidity. I don't believe that there is overwhelming evidence that BMI on its own is a factor. I definitely feel BMI is one factor. It's not the only factor. And certainly one of the studies that did support the BMI was a factor was one by Dowsey and Chong. But taking a step back from the paper, you know, and putting my clinician's hat on, I certainly am challenged, particularly with a patient when they are regaining function of their hip abductors, their ability to stabilize and to walk with a non-ontalgic or a non-Trondellenburg gait is a lot more challenging if a patient has a higher body mass index, just the element of physics and the leverage of that gluteus medius. So from a clinician's point of view, very often the patients who do have a more pronounced Trondellenburg very often are the ones I see who do unfortunately have a higher BMI. Yeah. In this respect, uh, you did not find an influence of surgical approach to physical functioning. There are some reports that the lateral approach of the hip gives a higher risk of adduction muscle dysfunction, so you could expect a less favorable outcome in this situation. That is correct, and that actually surprised me because clinically from seeing patients who have a lateral approach, I frequently see that they are a little slower. They tend to have a more prolonged Trendelenburg pattern than those who have a posterior posterolateral approach, but not in the case of this study. 
certainly looking to the future and doing a study with a larger cohort of patients, that would be a factor I would go back and revisit. But you are correct in that it was not seen to be a predictor in this current study. So, Robert, what is your preferred approach and why do you think people use posterior lateral versus posterior or even the anterior approach? Yeah, well, the choosing an approach for total hip arthroplasty is determined, first of all, by the way you are educated. Some people learn the postural approach and some learn the lateral or anterolateral approach. So you get used to an approach and you learn the total hip arthroplasty in a certain way. There are also arguments to choose for one or other approach. The posterior approach is associated with a higher dislocation rate of the hip prosthesis in literature, although the figures about the dislocation rates are contradictory. Some people say when you perform surgery well and reattach the capsule and the short extra rotators, there's no higher risk of dislocations or to disagree with that. So that is a factor, an argument for surgeons not choosing a posterior or posterolateral approach. On the other side, the lateral approach has the disadvantage of a higher chance of dysfunction of the abductor musculature. So that's an argument for using the posterior approach. For me, working in a training hospital, it's also very pleasant to work and to operate a patient in the lateral positioning. Well, it gives me more opportunity to, uh, how do you say it, to coach the resident during the surgery. It gives me more overview of the operation field, but that's my opinion. So you prefer the lateral approach? No, I use the posterior approach. Okay. Because I don't see a higher risk of dislocation and I'm afraid of the Trennerberg gate as I have seen with the lateral approach. And Emily, what are the surgeons doing in Indianapolis? There, again, it will vary. I currently work with a group of orthopedic surgeons, and we see a variety of different approaches from the anterior to a lateral to postolateral. The most commonly performed is the postolateral. Again, the risk of dislocation, as Robert mentioned, is higher with this group, but we really do stress the precautions. And very rarely do we see patients who come in with a dislocation. I think the last one I saw was maybe a couple of weeks ago, and she'd had her hip replacement for 20 years and obviously had moved wrong and had a dislocation at that point. But it's fairly rare to see dislocations, and patients are ingrained in what they should and shouldn't do during that healing time while the soft tissue of the external rotators is binding back and giving security to the capsule. Yeah, I agree with that, So the the procedure is selected at this point based on basically the comfort of the surgeon because there's not literature that's suggesting that one or the other approach leads to a better outcome. In terms of functional outcome, it doesn't appear that either approach at this point has been demonstrated to be superior. I have not read anything in the literature that would take one way or the other. Okay. All right. So, Emily, can you explain the advantage of the CART analysis over other methods that have been used previously to predict outcomes? Yes. The CART analysis is a slightly different statistical approach, and it's gaining some notoriety. 
in contrast to perhaps the use of multiple regression or logistical regression, the beauty of the CART analysis is that there's no assumptions made regarding the underlying distributions of the predictor variables. I was certainly working with a smaller subset of patients, and this was a little bit restrictive as to the distribution of the data for the logistical regression. The CART analysis really allows predictors to come into play, and it examines the interactions of the predictors, I think, a little bit more dynamically than a logistical regression would. So these complex interactions of individual variables are more teased out, and that was the reason to look at the patient really in a, as I think in my biomechanical mind, more of a three-dimensional picture of the patient versus individual components, maybe their BMI or their age. It really brings the whole picture of the patient together. I would encourage listeners to look at figure two because it really does a nice job showing the decision branches that were made based on the card analysis. Is that true, Emily? Am I presenting that correctly? That is, and actually, you know, what's often cited regarding the CART is that it is a hierarchical tree structure and it's known to better mimic human decision-making. So when you did your CART analysis, as you said earlier in the conversation, the body mass index was identified as a predictor to classify those patients who would not reach successful outcome status. Mm -hmm. But in your discussion, you talk about two other investigators who had much larger samples, one Morin et al. and the other Jackson et al., who didn't see BMI as a factor affecting predicted outcomes. So can you talk about the discrepancy between your findings and those in the literature? Sure. They were certainly two excellent studies and they were very good for, you know, reflecting on the content and the results of my study. What I did find with the Jackson study is that particularly their decision about success or not, they looked at radiographic imaging up to six years after surgery. And in my mind, that certainly is an important factor because if there is loosening or need for revision, that will impact return to function. But looking at the radiographic image to make a decision on success or not may not totally capture that patient's ability to function at their optimal level. Relating to the Moran study and his colleagues, they did use some other outcomes measures. They used the SF36 and the Harris-HIP score, which again have a slightly different bias as regards to what they're measuring in comparison to the lower extremity functional scale, the LEFS. In the Moran study, they also looked at the variables of death, dislocation, revision, and infection, again, as to make a decision as to whether the outcome was optimal or not. So both studies with very large numbers and well-conducted studies, but my study looks more at the element of function. In other words, has the surgery made a meaningful difference for them in their life? Okay. I wondered what was the post-operative rehabilitation protocol of the patients. Did they use crutches? Did they get physical therapy in an outpatient setting? The standard was that the patients all were inpatients for two to three days. They were on a standard walker for up to four weeks after surgery. All the patients received the same post-operative program leaving hospital to their acute care program. At six weeks, when they came back, I went through a updated program, a more advanced program. All 40 study participants received that protocol at that time, and they were encouraged to keep a diary. None of the patients had formal outpatient therapy, but they continued the exercises of the updated program until we followed up with the final phone call. Okay. 
And how does that differ from what happens in the Netherlands? We use crutches, two elbow crutches for six weeks. And after that, they get physical therapy in the outpatient setting three times a week. How long do they receive that outpatient therapy? Well, that's not quite clear to us as an orthopedic surgeon. Okay. Some of the people have stopped at uh, six weeks. Others which have some delayed recovery are still having physical therapy. But I don't know which percentage of patients still have physical therapy after six weeks. Okay. And certainly we see here in the United States that very often past the acute care, many patients don't receive any formal instruction. They're expected to continue the exercises independently. The challenge is that sometimes if there isn't somebody, a therapist, for example, monitoring that they're progressing, that these patients from a movement point of view can fall through the cracks a little bit and it may not be detected until follow-up visits with their surgeon. Yeah, well, patients get instructions in the hospital and all patients get a referral to a physical therapist in their home setting. However, nowadays, people have to pay physical therapy by themselves after uh, eight treatments. And you see now that some patients stop after eight treatments because they can't afford it anymore. So that's a new development in the Netherlands. And I would just like to clarify, certainly from years of working with patients who've had total hip arthroplasty, it's not that all patients require rehab, but really the key is to identify those who would benefit the most so that we can spend our resources appropriately. Exactly. And then I'm going to ask Robert if he has any additional questions that he would like to ask of Emily before we ask what the take-home message is. No, my take-home message would be that there is more need for research to identify patients who have a less than favorable outcome in terms of physical functioning after total hip arthroplasty, not only in order to try to influence these factors preoperatively, but also to identify patients who need more intensive rehabilitation program postoperatively. On the other hand, you could identify patients who do not need intensive physical therapy, so it would save resources especially in these uh, difficult times. Furthermore, patients with their specific circumstance can be given a more reliable perspective on what they can expect after the operation. Emily? My take-home message is that there really are patients who do very well after total hip arthroplasty that don't have difficulty or don't have limitations, but the few that do we need to be able to identify them and use our resources to address their limitations so that at six months or a year, we're not seeing them back with chronic trochanteric bursitis or low back pain because they didn't get the appropriate intervention to get them ambulating in an optimal pattern at an earlier stage. So this is one of my hobby horses to get on is the need for classification So rather than developing a standard protocol that all people who elect to have total joint arthroplasty follow, we can allocate resources and spend our limited time helping to achieve outcomes in those who may not otherwise achieve it. So I thank you, Emily, for bringing this theme to the journal this month. I think it's a really important one, and it's nice to see this theme emerge in a different population of patients. Thank you both. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. Send us your comments or suggestions about this podcast via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 
626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening.